save our wildlife, save the environment, save our world. It all starts with a little knowledge. Welcome to Our Wild World with L.A. Weiss. There is so much that's being done and can be done with help from specialists and marginalized community groups to you. We'll discuss the future of Africa, the wildlife, and the people, and show you how it affects the entire planet. Now, here is Ellie Weiss from the Wild Eyes Foundation. Good morning and welcome to Our Wild World. Today, we're going to the dogs and delving into understanding who they are with my guest Mark Beckoff and his new book, Canine Confidential. For all the love and attention we give dogs, much of what they do remains mysterious. Just think about the different behaviors you see at a dog park. Mark is going to help us realize what goes on in dogs' heads and hearts, and how much can we know and understand. A lifelong dog lover, Mark not only brilliantly opens up the world of dog behavior, but also helps us understand how we can make our dogs' lives the best they can possibly be. Rooted in the most up-to-date science on cognition and emotion, fields that have exploded in recent years, Canine Confidential is a wonderfully accessible treasure trove of new information and myth-busting. Welcome, Mark. Good to be here, Ellie. Thanks for having me. It's always great to uh, talk with you. We have such a good time. So today, we're going to delve into one of your favorite subjects, um, going to the dogs. So um, the core of your newest book, Canine Confidential, which came out in March, I believe, is to help us humans to grasp that dogs are unique individuals and that we do well to refrain from thinking about them as if they are all the same. So this has something to do with your idea of the way we even talk about it, the dog versus dogs. Correct. I mean, there's, there's a couple of major messages in my book, and I, I'm not going to prioritize them because, because there are a number. But one is, of course, that there's no being who we can call the dog, um, when people say dogs do this or dogs don't do that, I always say, well, but some do. So it, it's, a, it's, it's kind of tr- trendy now, and I don't mean that in any um, der- derogatory way, to really focus on the individual characteristics and personalities of dogs as it is all other animals. So, so that's one big thing, that there's no the dog. And, and two other messages that maybe we'll get back to is that dogs are not necessarily humans' best friends. I mean, probably if somebody did a survey, they might find that more people um, like dogs than those who don't. But I know a lot of people, it's not that they don't like dogs, it's they've had bad experiences or something. So I always caution it because related to the notion that um, there's no other dog, there are certain dogs who are really hard to befriend. And another one that always gets me is when when people say that dogs are unconditional lovers. They're not. If you've ever rescued a dog who's had a bad upbringing, then you know that they are very selective in the um, humans with whom they'll form close social bonds. So that's a good point. So underneath that bad conditioning... Um, you know, poor socialization, feralness, or wherever that particular dog came from, do you think there's a willingness for them to love? Or should we go into this with what you're saying? Look at the dog as an individual. And then I guess this comes to another question. Are certain breeds prone to certain characteristics that would be better or worse for certain people to take on as a companion and that you know this role of socializing is it you know how much of us is required to do right. that to make the best dog well there's or not make yeah. the best dog to bring out the best in your dog no, no, no. I, yeah no i understand well that's another book no i mean <laughs> No, I mean, those are really, really, um, you know, good questions. So I think that when we view dogs as individuals, we get, a, we get away from breedism or breed stereotypes. So sure, you can have 
individuals of certain breeds who are, you know, have the genetics for work or for long haul or for being wired and running around and doing all these zoomies that we call them. But once again, I'm very careful about breedism because there's always going to be exceptions. And I'm not an expert on this, so I always will tell people that. But my take is that breedism across the board doesn't work. And one example I use is I I love beagles, and beagles are, you know, very friendly. They're nice dogs. Um, they're, They're pretty easy keepers. People tell me I've never had a beagle or lived with a beagle, although I studied them for years. But about a couple of years ago, I was walking down the block, and I met, I saw this guy I know. I, I don't know him as a friend, but I recognized him. And he had a beagle. And I went up to the beagle, and I was going to say hello to the beagle. And I know not to reach over the head of any dog, so I put my hand low. And the guy was great. He said, well, he said, I'm sure most beagles are friendly, but this guy just was rescued from a horrific laboratory. Uh. And so... This beagle's upbringing or, you know, the duration of time in the lab, he was abused and he saw and he heard and he smelled his friend Beagle's abuse. So I'm just saying that pit bulls get a bad rap. And yes, there are a lot of bites and problems, if you will, with them. But I know lovely pit bulls and one of my best friends around here now who I met just recently is a rescued pit bull named Blue. So... I'm careful about that. But the other question in terms of the practicality is, you know, what kind of dog should a person get? Well, it depends on their lifestyle. It depends how active or, you know, inactive they are. Um, I don't think it's good for a 100-pound person, male or female, to get a Malamute who weighs 100 pounds who always will have to be on a leash. And I, people laugh when they hear that, but... Having lived with Malamutes and other large dogs, I can tell you right now they're a handful in terms of if they all if they if they always have to be leashed. And that comes to another point, like a, a mastiff or some of the the Swedish um, the mountain dogs. They're huge dogs. They're the size of a small horse, and they can be very gentle, but they they are strong. These uh, the Swedish mast. Uh, the Swedish mountain dog was bred to haul up to 8,000 pounds. That's, that's a lot of dog. It's a lot of dog. And right. And, and, you know, most people I know, you know, uh, my friends will ask me and I'll get emails from people and, you know, asking me what I think. And I'm very careful about it because if they're people I know, like my friends around here, I'm pretty good about suggesting what kind of dog they might want to bring into their life. But, I really need to know about their lifestyle, are there kids, do they live alone, how long might the dog be left alone, will the dog get the ability to run off leash, you know, like border, co- I love border collies, but they can be active 24-7 with a few seconds rest here and there, so they're not meant for everybody, but that's not an anti-border collie statement, it's just more it's it's an understanding that some animals have high play drive and how to make the give the dog the best life to make best use of that characteristic. Precisely. I know for example high play drive dogs make great sniffer dogs. Yes. Yes. And and, and a lot of my friends who live, you know, in Boulder or live in other cities will often say something like, you know, I'm leaving a dog alone all day and you know what do I, you know, can you make a generalization that a small dog might do better than a large dog? And I'm going, no, I can't make that generalization because I love Jack Russells and I love some of the smaller dogs and I love the hybrids, of course, and they're wired also. So this is a really good discussion because it's not a breedism discussion per se. What it really is is say, if you want to bring a dog into your home and into your heart, Choose the dog who has certain requirements or needs and be sure you can fulfill them because every single dog who lives with every single human is spending a lot of time time trying to adapt to our world. So that brings up a question. They always say dogs love to please their owners or their guardians. 
So that's not necessarily the case. A dog is a great companion and a relationship as long as it's equal footing, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I write about, you know, the, some of the components of these, some of the components of a really good, solid, reciprocal, enduring relationship or social bond. And I call it the big T, mutual tolerance. I mean, dogs need to sniff. So the dog's walk should be the dog's walk, not the people's walk. And if your dog likes to sniff, let him sniff. You might not go as far, but don't use a dog as your kind of vehicle for exercise. And also, you know, of course, it's it's a joke, but it isn't so much, you know, don't use your dog to meet other people and, you know, men meeting women, women meeting men, because it's not bad. It's just that you better be sure that if you use the dog and you're using the dog, let's not, you know, talk around that. You want to make sure that whoever else comes into your life as a friend or a relationship really likes that particular dog because I've had people say, I love dogs, but I don't think I could ever really live with that dog. And, and, and so once again, you know, when you boil out all the stuff, it comes down to the fact that there's no one, the dog and people should be very, very careful about breedism. So it's really, you know, a lot like people or other individuals. We have to think of every breed, every animal, when we're going to consider living with it as a companion to um, enhance our lifestyle or friendship or reduce loneliness and all the things that, you know, having a companion animal, a dog, is good for. That it's a lot about our lifestyle so that we don't really want to look at a breed, a breed may tend to have certain characteristics and traits, but you really need to learn the dog. Yeah, and even if you're not, you know, going for a full-breed dog, and I'm upfront about saying that there's plenty of full-breed dogs at dog shelters who are fully rescuable and adoptable, but even, you know, with a good old mutt, you know, you really need to know some of the genes that are in that animal. And once again... It's a combination of the experience of the animal and their genes. It's, it's no different from humans in that sense. And then also, as you were saying, not getting an animal as an accessory. Oh, no, no. When you bring an animal into your, you know, your life, I always like to say into your home and your heart, it's a cradle-to-grave commitment. You, the cradle begins the moment you decide to bring that particular individual home and it ends when sadly if you if if you outlive them it ends at the time when you need to make an end of life decision i recognize that oftentimes dogs just pass away like people do i i also recognize that sometimes the end of a life for a dog can be tragic but when i bring dogs into my home and heart and, you know, assuming I'm going to outlive them, which is not necessarily the case, but then I have committed myself to giving that animal the very best life possible and allowing them to express their dogness. And that's the dilemma because even homed dogs, even dogs who are living in good homes, if you will, have st- can have stressful lives because they're always adapting to the life of their human or humans. We tell them when they can eat, what they can eat, who they can play with, when they can play, when they can pee, when they can poop. If we, you know, I mean, the list goes, you know, when they will walk, how far they will walk, how they will walk. So when you really make the list of the things we control, we basically control everything in their lives. Wow. When you put it that way, it's it's kind of mind boggling. So it, you also mentioned that it's, a really good idea to understand the behavior of the dog. So in what you were just saying, they're always watching us. They're they're cueing off of our behavior. So if we're having a bad day, then we can expect their behavior to respond. And that could go in any number of directions, depending on how well that relationship is yeah. and, and how well their lives are enriched or fulfilled, that they can come and hug us versus, you know, I'm getting out of here because you've just gone crazy. 
Yeah, and you know they have very keen senses of smell, and we know that they're pretty good at detecting certain diseases and bombs and and food items that they're not supposed to bring through an airport. So they're picking up a lot of the changes in our scent. You know, we call them pheromones, and so you know they get a good idea of how we're feeling and what we're likely likely to do. You know, they may associate a particular scent with a particular. Um, behavior and and they respond and there was a study recently that showed that dogs basically by their behavior can let us know that we're angry when we don't even know if we are the bottom line there of course is that they have such keen senses of smell that we may be buzzing around in a busy day and not even know that we're stressed or we're upset about something or you know, whatever the mood is. So they well, I can are- relate to that because I don't I used to have dogs and Chows were always my favorite dogs and that's not an easy dog to deal with. But yeah. now I have cats and cats definitely let you know what you're feeling because they're they're little reflections of yourself. And so, so and if your so- cat is being a weird, it's usually because you're being weird and they're trying to tell you, Hey, we can get out of this. Yeah, I mean, cats are no less social, no Lola. You know, people think cats are less social and they don't, they don't express their emotions. And I've never lived with a cat, although I would love to, but I have a pretty significant cat allergy. But the cats who I've been around are amazing beings. And once again, it's the same, it's the same sort of thing with a cat. There's no one the cat. And there are independent cats and there are cats who are not so independent. So it really comes down to knowing knowing your lifestyle, knowing what you can offer, and how much, I always say, you know, how many degrees of freedom do you have in your lifestyle? I mean, if you work a nine-to-five job, you don't have many degrees of freedom in terms of when you leave and when you'll be back, so you have to adjust. Um, my neighbor just got a puppy, and it's great. So she works pretty much all day. So she has a woman around Boulder who's a dog walker who is going to come twice a, week, twice a day to walk her new puppy, which is awesome because the puppy needs intense socialization with other dogs and with other people. So that really pleased me because when I heard she got a puppy, the first thing that went through my mind, although I don't mean it against her, she's a lovely woman, but was, my goodness, I guess I'll be taking that dog out, which I would be more than happy to do. <laughs> but, 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 you know, it's just the kind of thing where you've so got to make that kind of assessment. It's a big decision to bring in a pet. It's like having a baby. I hate to say it that way, but <laughs> I, it is. It's, sometimes I think it's worse because they don't speak English. Yeah. We I have think. to have, you know, a little more deeper sense of understanding of communication and socializing and, and reading situations. So um, we need to step away for a break. This is a great, exciting conversation. Okay. So we're going to get a little deeper into some of the history and how to live with dogs. So stick with us and we'll be right back. Wildlife. No wild, no life. Big. Scary. Beautiful. Predators are in danger. Without them, our rivers dry up. Our forests don't grow. Our communities go hungry. Our biodiversity crumbles. Wildlife drives our planet's ecosystems. The wild effect. It's in our hands. Ellie founded Wild Eyes Foundation because she loves Africa and to remind us that there are more harmonious and less destructive ways to live on our planet. She does this so we may be able to look inside ourselves and understand the deeper partnerships that connect us all and to take responsibility for our lives and our Earth. Africa is one of our last remaining wild places and the origins of humanity. It is irreplaceable. Africa is at a crossroads, on the brink of possibilities. We can choose to let its wildlife be lost forever, or we can help save it. In Africa, it is still possible to make a difference. Visit us at www.wildeyes.org to learn how you can make a difference. We only have one Earth. If we don't care, who will? W-I-L-D-I-Z-E dot O-R-G. 
listening to Ellie Weiss and Our Wild World. We want to hear from you. Call into the program at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. If you'd rather send us an email, please send it to wildeyes at wildeyes.org. That's W-I-L-D-I-Z-E at W-I-L-D-I-Z-E dot O-R-G. Now, back to our wild world. And welcome back. This is Ellie Weiss. You're listening to Our Wild World and my guest, Mark Beckoff. And we're talking about his newest book, Canine Confidential, and what we all could do to learn more about our best friend, um, the dog. Uh, And as we learned from the first section that, you know, the dog is not always thinking of us as their best friend. It has a lot to do with their background, their history, and where they came from. So we're going to take just a little journey back in time along the evolutionary tree when dogs branched off from their wild ancestors and began living near us. One of your articles in Psychology Today, your blog, from uh, July 27th, 2nd 2009 a domesticated wolf is a dog so um people sometimes keep what they think are domesticated wolves so there's some main talking points i'd like to just sort of discuss here um that wolves the difference between wild genes and socialization domestication and then um the the genetic substantial behavioral changes that they undergo so i'm going to sort of let you wing all that in in here so when we see all these advertisements about bring out the wolf and your dog selling dog food why is this sort of a myth that needs to be busted that getting back to it we need to think about our dog as the dog not as a wolf yeah i mean (sighs) You know, once again, people can write books on it, but people don't want to read books on it who are just thinking about the dog who they're living with. So basically, the reason I wrote that article was because people will tell me about the domesticated wolves with whom they live or the wolf-dog hybrid they have who's 42.7% wolf. So the deal is a very simple one. Domestication is an evolutionary process. What they're talking about is that they have a friendly wolf, a wolf who likes people, and that's a socialized wolf. So socialization and domestication are two radically different processes. So that's why I say that a domesticated wolf is really a dog because that's what happened during domestication. You know, basically wolves became dogs or Mark Durr, who is an expert on this topic, wrote a great book called How the Dog Became a Dog. And it's, I love the title because, because, because really that's what we're talking about. You know, over time, wolves became more dog-like and then basically you had a stable species and you then basically have the individuals who we now call domesticated dogs. And this comes in with selective breeding. Yeah, I mean, the, you know, the, 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 theory, the, the, the theory that seems to have the most weight is the, a very simple one once again. And that is that, you know, wolves are cooperative. They live in groups just like early humans did. And they started coming near where people were and they developed these reciprocal relationships. And people then, you know, and they, didn't, they may not have even known what they were doing because, you know, they, they may have just been allowing certain individuals to breed and there's going to be some genetic aspects to being social and the ability to be socialized. And so over time, they were selecting different traits that worked so that the people could have these reciprocal cooperative relationships with um, the wolves who were becoming dogs. And that's exactly what people are doing these days when they select breeds. They select for tails and coat color and coat, you know, texture and... And facial expressions. Facial, you know, morphology, everything. So, so yes. And a lot of it, of course, could have been just unconscious selection. So, basically, that's, 
domestication is an evolutionary process that takes time, whereas socialization can be immediate. You know, you can either have, you can, you know, I, I raised some, I, I studied captive wolves years ago who had been rescued from homes and they was they were very young and all of a sudden, you know, I became their friend and the dogs with whom I lived became their friends. So we had socialized wolves, but not domesticated wolves. And this also, um, there are some great articles on this, and I'm glad you mentioned Mark Doerr. I'd like to read that one. But in, in terms of this selection process, one of the books that I read, you know, it's not just us humans selecting the dogs that were social to us way back in the day, but those those wolves that socialized, they went and bred, and some of them were more socialized and tended to hang out with us more yep. often. So there's there's things going on, and this is what we're going to also talk about in terms of the individual dog's behavior and their preferences. Oh, exactly. I mean, I'm not going to say that, you know, some people go, well, the wolves choose, chose us. No, I think that... I think what you're saying is right. I think it's just this reciprocal relationship and certain key behavior characteristics mesh. They like certain traits of us or, you know, particular humans. We like certain traits of theirs. And they um, they basically went on. There's an excellent book um, that just came out called The First Domestication that really summarizes a lot of the different theories. And what I loved about the first domestication as well was that it went into a lot of Native American and indigenous people's views of, you know, has wolf, of, of these animals as wolves transition to dogs. But yeah, it's a reciprocal relationship. And that's why what we were talking about at the beginning of your show is when you get a dog and you bring a dog into your life, you want that kind of cooperation reciprocity, and tolerance. So it's a good thing to understand yourself. Take a really good look at yourself and be honest with yourself rather than, as you said earlier, it's like having children. You know, the the dog is not going to heal your marriage or your relationship or whatever thing is going on in your life, but it, it that reciprocity, the two of you can grow together. Yeah, I've got great stories in my book about a lot of different interactions I had with humans at dog parks. And, you know, a couple of the, the, the sort of discussions were like, oh, I can't understand why my dog always does this. And some were positive traits and some were not so positive. But really, the answer I wanted to give to people, which I never would, was, have you looked in the mirror recently? <laughs> Because, and once again, you know, it's not an insult, but dogs pick up on us. They pick up on our behavior, our moods. They, they know our schedule probably better than we do. And that's what they adapt to. And so if you're wired and buzzing all around, you might have a nervous dog. And if you're really laid back, maybe your dog would have some, you know, inclination to be more laid back. But really... Um, they they spend all i mean when they're with us they they know us better sometimes i think they know us better than we know ourselves and the other thing that you said ellie is really important don't get a dog to rescue yourself from some kind of bad situation because because it might work for a little while because dogs are such social magnets and you know we call them social catalysts and social lubricants but the fact of the matter is it's, it's like people who move to get to change and, you know, it's called pulling a geographic and I sometimes call it pulling a canid. You know, don't, <laughs> don't think the dog is going to rescue you from a difficult situation. And I, and I don't mean that lightly because I've had people say that, oh, I love, I haven't ever had a dog or it's been a while since I've had a dog. So now I have a dog and everything's fine. And then a couple of months later, they just say, you know, everything isn't fine. It's, I love the dog, but the dog didn't do for me what I thought he or she would. And, I'm, and they know my answer and that if they had asked me before, I would have said, don't get a dog to rescue you. It's sort of like saying the honeymoon is over. The honeymoon is over. Yes. <laughs> I, I think that's a great way to put it. And 
And that, of course, underlies, you know, the or, you know, strongly supports the notion that getting a dog can be a multi-year, and you hope it will be, commitment. And that commitment from your side has to be unconditional. It's got to, I mean, yes, there can be situations that are very difficult, but in the average run of the mill, it's unconditional. Your dog might poop in the bedroom. Your dog might get sick and need veterinary care. Your dog might do something that you don't like. But so do humans, <laughs> you know, and, and we don't treat. And we you don't. also bring up a good point, you know, in, in that it's going to be a long-term relationship. And most often our dog will pass before we do lifespan. And often we have to make that end-of-life decision. But the other side of the coin is to prepare for the other happenstance. You should pass before your, your dog, and to make plans for what's going to happen with your yes. dog or your pet. Yes, I mean, um, actually, Jessica Pierce, with whom I wrote the book, The Animal's Agenda, um, we have a book that will be out next year called Unleashing the Dog, A Field Guide to Freedom. And while we don't have a section per se, you know, we have these situations that we call the what-if situations. What if a relationship breaks up? What if you lose a job? What if you have to move? Um, what if you can no longer have the dog because of some physical or, you know, um, other, um, you know, condition? And so it, it, it's these what-if situations like you're just, you know, describing means that you need to think about what the dog's life will be without you. If, I mean, if you're in a relationship and, you know, what kind, you know, and you, there's somebody who will, if you will, inherit the dog. So it's not necessarily your dog. It might be their dog as well as your dog. But I like what you're asking because a lot of people I know, one of my friends um, just moved. It's really interesting. And I, don't, I know her, but I've never met her dog. She rescued her dog a couple of years ago. And just this morning, um, I asked her, you know, how's River? That's her dog. And she said, well, we just moved and she's getting accustomed. But what I loved was the sensitivity to the fact that River was not necessarily going to just plop down in a new place and be her old self. Right. If you're, you know, you're right. You're so right about, you know, leaving, leaving instructions in a will for you know, your dog, you know, or naming somebody who said that in case something happens to you and you can no longer, you know, take care of that dog. It's like extending the dog sitter's instructions when you're going on vacation for an extended period of time and can't take your animal with you. It's it's exactly like that. And, you know, and and so I, I really appreciate your asking that because... Because there's going to be situations, you know, I know somebody who lived alone and they had an accident and they really couldn't walk very well for a couple of weeks. So they had to find a dog walker or dog runner. I mean, it's, you know, it's not a bad or a good thing. It just is the reality that once again, your dog is 100% dependent on your goodwill and your and your willingness to do for them as much as you can to give them what they need. And there's there's another situation, you know, where elderly people have pets. I went through this with my mom. She had a cat and she passed away. So we had to make plans for the cat. And I certainly couldn't bring it in because it wouldn't get along with my five. Fortunately, one of the caretakers that took care of her took in the cat because they had a great relationship. So there was a steady change from, at least from the person was familiar, into a new home. So it made that transition a lot easier for both of them. Precisely. You know, life, you know, we all know it. It's got a a lot of unexpected twists and turns. And once again, you know, if you've got a child, you make those kinds of plans. And if you have a dog or a cat or another companion animal, you've got to have a contingency plan. So... Yeah. And, and, you know, honestly, a lot of people don't think about it. And, you know, why should they? But, you know, 
there, there are a lot of people, you know, certainly if you're at a, of a certain age, you know, you're kind of, you know, you're betting, you're hedge betting that you will outlive your companion animal, but that's not surely always the case. Yeah, life happens while making other plans. Yes, the life it continues. Yes. <laughs> so that that brings up just a it triggered a thought in my mind. You know, a lot of young people today, the millennial group, who often don't even think they're going to have a future, um, and this constant advertising of, you know, have a pet, uh, the. Yeah. The so many strays, the puppy mills, the stopping of that, the shelters, adopt a dog. So I'm thinking about this kind of short-term future thinking yeah. of some age groups and, you know, bringing in a dog as though it's going to fix, we, we talked about it a bit, fix things or that they'll go through life with me and my dog and is is that a good thing to do? And especially if you're in an unstable situation and don't know what you're going to do, is is it good to be homeless and have a dog? Or would it be a better thing to consider fixing your lifestyle first? Yeah, well, I'm all for fixing your lifestyle first. And the reason I say this, and of course, I've known people of all different ages, men, you know, men, women, different ages, um, different professions, different personality types who, for one reason or another, got a dog. And then, you know, it was untenable. I mean, one could sit around and debate what untenable meant, but it was untenable. And the dog got the short end of the leash, if you will, and was and was um, abandoned, you know, given up. But no, that's exactly what we were talking about before. Take hold of your life. And I love a story recently um, I didn't, I, I didn't know this woman, but I met her through a friend and we were chatting and she said to me, oh, I hear you study dogs and I want to get a dog, but, and, and, you know, my job situation is unstable and I might be, you know, moving to New York City. And, and I said, she said, what do you think? And I said, the most mature thing you can do is wait till you know where you're going to be. You know, it was, it was in the card she was moving. It wasn't like, you know, a 99% chance she'd be here. And I really appreciated the maturity with which she faced that situation because she had lived with dogs. Um, I'm sure she would be a good dog human, but she knew she was unlikely going to be in Boulder for a while. And, and she might move from, you know, beautiful Boulder where it's so easy to have a dog and run dogs at dog parks and, in the, you know, wherever to New York city where you can have dogs there, but, you're not just letting them outside, you know, you're not letting them out your front door so they can run up the dirt road. Right, and living in skyscrapers is a very different life for a dog than living on a house with a yard. Absolutely. So, so once I, again, that comes down to size, some characteristics, and breeding, um, and, and knowing yourself and your lifestyle. And as you'd said, I love that term reciprocity, uh, being able to give the dog the best life possible. Yep. Um, at this moment, we need to once again cut away for a break. This conversation is going just lickety split. So stick with <laughs> us. We've got a lot more to talk about, and we'll be right back. Wildlife. No wild, no life. Big, scary, beautiful. Predators are in danger. Without them, our rivers dry up. Our forests don't grow. Our communities go hungry. Our biodiversity crumbles. Wildlife drives our planet's ecosystems. The wild effect. It's in our hands. Ellie founded Wild Eyes Foundation because she loves Africa and to remind us that there are more harmonious and less destructive ways to live on our planet. She does this so we may be able to look inside ourselves and understand the deeper partnerships that connect us all and to take responsibility for our lives and our Earth. Africa is one of our last remaining wild places and the origins of humanity. It is irreplaceable. Africa is at a crossroads, on the brink of possibilities. We can choose to let its wildlife be lost forever, or we can help save it. In Africa, it is still possible to make a difference. Visit us at www.wildeyes.org to learn how you can make a difference. We only have one Earth. If we don't care, who will? 
W-I-L-D-I-Z-E dot O-R-G. You're listening to Ellie Weiss and Our Wild World. We want to hear from you. Call into the program at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. If you'd rather send us an email, please send it to wildeyes at wildeyes.org. That's W-I-L-D-I-Z-E at W-I-L-D-I-Z-E dot O-R-G. Now, back to our wild world. And welcome back. This is Ellie. You're listening to Our Wild World and my guest, Mark Beckhoff. And we're talking dogs today and his uh, latest book, Canine Confidential. So if you, um, I strongly suggest you read the book and as well tune in and go back and listen to the first two sections of today's episode because we we traveled a lot of territory. So now we're going to move into a little more practical information of those who are living with dogs or considering getting a dog. Mark, um, you did an article in just May of this year in Psychology Today, and it's called, Let's Give Dogs a Break by Distinguishing Myth from Facts. There are still a lot of dog behavior that we don't understand, and misconceptions abound, and generalizations should not be made. So help us understand this list. Yeah, thanks, Ellie. Yeah, I mean, we know a lot about dogs. And, you know, what what irks me the most is that we don't have to embellish dogs. They're cognitive, they're smart, they're emotional, moral beings. But here are some of the myths. So my colleague Jessica Pierce wrote an article kind of building off of my book. One myth is dogs don't display dominance. They do display dominance, but we should not be dominating them when we train them. And we'll get back to that. Another is that dogs don't feel guilt. Well, we're not, a a very well-known study showed that we're not very good at detecting guilt in dogs, but the study did not study or ask the question of whether dogs feel guilt. So people will write to me or there's been popular articles in the New York Times saying dogs don't feel guilt. And the study they cite is really a study that shows we're not good at reading guilty facial expressions. Another is dogs live in the present. They don't. And common sense and research shows that this myth has no credence. And I always say, if you think dogs live in the present, go out and throw a Frisbee for a dog or think about a dog you've rescued who had a horrible upbringing. The past influences the present the present influences the future. Another is that all dogs need is a soft bed and a food, you know, in a bowl. No, dogs need love. Another is you shouldn't hug a dog. And this is just so ridiculous. But there was an article also in the New York Times that basically said don't hug a dog. And hugging, if a dog likes to be hugged, hug them a lot. But Dogs are like people. Some people don't like to be hugged, so don't hug them. And I gave a talk about my book at the um, Humane Society for Boulder Valley, and a woman came up to me afterwards and just said, thank you for giving me permission to hug my dog. I read this article, and I stopped hugging her, and I know she missed it. So those are some. Another myth would be that, you know, we talked about this, that, you know, you can talk about the dog. Nope, there's lots of variation. Another is that desexing dogs, males in particular, you know, will cure everything for getting rid of unwanted behaviors. And this isn't so. Veterans disagree about what, you know, desexing a dog, you know, castrating a dog is. It doesn't necessarily make them less aggressive and less likely to roam. Um, I have just a couple more. One that I hear about at um, dog parks a lot is that play fighting will always escalate into um, serious aggression. And it turns out that if you really look at what we know about it, rough and tumble play escalates into real fighting about less than 1% of the time, between 1% and 2% of the time. One that always gets me is that dogs shouldn't sleep in beds or bedrooms. And once again, 
there was this article in the New York Times that just really said out of the it was called out of the doghouse into the bed and the woman who wrote it said quote some dogs may not belong in the bedroom such as very young or old pets who may not sleep through the night a sick pet or a reactive pet who might become aggressive when startled or, or woken up suddenly and i was thinking are you kidding me the sick dogs, the dogs who aren't doing well, the very young, the very old, are the ones who need to be near their humans. So, you know, once again, people look at these articles and they think that, you know, um, you know, they think that all just well if you just make your dog sleep oh, I'm sitting here. If you could see my face, it, I, <laughs> I I'm, I'm sort of like looking like the dog with its ears cocked going, what? And yeah. um Two points came to my mind, the one about guilt, and there's so many videos of people saying, oh, um, Bucky, did you do this? Did you do this? And we're going to talk about this a little bit more about discipline, but you can tell by the look on the dog's face that they knew they did it, and then some people go further to then punish the dog by saying, okay, now it's time out. So this also brings up another point. When do you discipline the dog? You don't do it later. No. And, you know, you can tell by the, the, the look on the dog's face, it absolutely knows that it did it. And it's more important, I think, to understand what caused that behavior, especially when it's destructive, and how to respond to it. So that brings us into, you know, yes, they feel guilt. And how do you deal with that so yeah, this is a, a practical thing for folks right i mean and even if the question of whether they feel guilt is up in the air punishing a dog you know you know after, after they've the done fact. something like you know that you see a little poop on the floor or the, or food and you go no 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 they have no idea what's going on there i mean they 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 really don't so i you know a lot of it just comes down to understanding that Sometimes dogs make mistakes, if you will, and so do we. And, and, there's, so- and there's usually, um, you know, a reason if they're going to poo in the, or pee in the house, which oh. is an abnormal behavior for your dog. Let's say they didn't do it before. There's usually either a physiological, psychological, or health reason that they're trying to tell you something's going on here. Yeah, that it's unlikely that they're doing it because they know we don't like it. I, I, there are some people who think that dogs, you know, have us by the leash, and you know that they get back at us and they're using us. And I, you know, just being a scientist, maybe I'd like to say, well, maybe one in a million times a dog says, "I know Elliot or Mark doesn't like this, so I'm going to do it." No. When I had a dog who peed all over the house once, I got upset, but I didn't punish him. Turned out he had a kidney infection. And I, and, and, and I could only imagine, I was only gone a few hours because I work at home, but I can only imagine him running around the house crazy trying to get out because he had to pee. And then, so, yeah, and then yeah. we come home and see the couch torn apart and... We obviously know something went terribly wrong, and rather than punishing for that, I think it's a better idea to try and understand what the situation was, as you just said, running around the house trying to find a place to pee, or running around the house and I tore this couch apart because. Yeah, yeah. So it's it's not a personal attack on you, but they did it because I I think they know they're going to get our attention, and that's the whole point. Yeah, exactly. And I and somebody told me a really great story not too long ago where they came home and their house was a shamble. The dog hadn't really destroyed anything, but it was clear the dog was running donuts all around. And it turned out that someone had tried to I'm, I'm saying it jokingly, but I don't mean it. Someone had tried to break into the house. Um, a neighbor told them. So when they came home. The minute they saw the house was a shamble, they knew something was, quote, wrong. Either the dog was ill or something like that. So, yeah, I mean, sometimes we do the same darn thing. So <laughs> You're right. 
don't stick their nose don't yeah you know what i'm saying yeah yeah and that whole thing don't shove your nose your your dog or your cat's nose in their accident because it doesn't accomplish anything they know it's theirs so the better idea is to try and figure out what happened and how we can fix it rather than you know videoing it and posting it on facebook to get people to laugh because it's a it's a form of cruelty it is, a, it is a form of cruelty in the sense that there's likely a very good reason why your dog did something uncharacteristic and either punishing them or ridiculing them. You know, once again, it gets back to you wouldn't, you'd hope, I should say, you wouldn't do that to a kid. You know, if there's some unusual behavior and it's something you don't like, it would behoove you to find out more about what caused it. And I understand if you're not home, you don't know. But like the situation where my friend's neighbor said, oh, yes, yeah, somebody was going around rattling all the dog, all the doors trying to break into homes. So so it's, it's a good idea. So another point you highlighted was, you know, hugging dogs. And I'm, I'm just boggled that this article would say, don't hug a dog. But it does bring up a point about young children and people. They see a dog on the street and they're dog lovers, animal lovers, and they go all googly and go, oh, I love your dog. And they come up and immediately want to pet it. And, you know, the best line I ever had was um, people say, you know, does your dog bite? And they go up and then you say no. And then they pet the dog and the dog bites and you say and they say, well, I thought you said your dog didn't bite. And you say, well, that's not my dog. So um, there's there's reasons to not run up, and especially children, and this is a parental thing, to run up to a dog you don't know or even let your dog run up to in a dog park with a bunch yeah. of dogs before you know what the situation is. Yeah? Yeah. I'll tell you two, two stories. One was interesting was – Years ago, I was walking in Malamute. Uh, I lived outside of St. Louis when I was at Washington University. And I saw this guy walking down the street, and he crossed the street. And he was nice. He wasn't, you know, he was a very pleasant guy. And I said, oh, you know, my dog's okay. He doesn't bite. And the guy said, oh, yeah, how does he eat? (laughs) (laughs) No, seriously, Ellie, it just, I'll never forget that. It was, this was decades ago, and I went, yeah, you got a good point. That's a really good point. I like that one. I'm going to use that one. You know, another, you know, and what you're talking or about. Or the other one is, it doesn't bite me. It doesn't bite me. And yes, it was my dog. <laughs> but just yesterday in Boulder, something came up about people who allow their dogs to run up to people that way. I was sitting and um, outside and I saw this dog who had just... A couple of weeks ago, I learned, had her right foreleg amputated because of cancer. And the dog was doing really well. A woman comes around the corner, has a dog on a long leash. Dog runs up and starts growling at this amputee dog. And the the amputee dog, you know, could not fend for herself. And she had just recently had the surgery. So I said to the woman something like, you know, you need to control your dog. I was really upset because this dog, the amputee dog, was clearly stressed and could not, it was a front leg, so she was not mobile. And the woman said something like to me, well, you know, I don't always have control of my dog. And I said to her, and I didn't get angry because getting angry would get nothing done. I just said, well, you shouldn't be walking your dog where there are people and other dogs unless you have total control. And I understand once again that sometimes things happen but it's this thing about letting people run up to your dog or a dog and going right into their face like a kid might do or not taking responsibility for the fact that there are people who don't like dogs or are afraid. My mom liked dogs, but she was afraid of dogs because she had been bitten when she was young. So or they had a bad experience with that type of dog. Exactly. Or there was an odor in the air. You just don't know. Right. Responsible dog guardianship requires, demands that you know your dog and you don't allow your dog those degrees of freedom where they could cause harm. That's 
I hate to say it. So, so this well, this brings up another question in my mind: the the myth about leashes and freedom. That so many people, you know, they think putting their, a leash on their dog is crushing the spirit and taking away their freedom. I'm of the mind that when we know, whether you're a dog or a cat or a horse or a person, when we know our boundaries, then we're much more comfortable and able to respond appropriately. That, you know, having a dog leash trained is not so much about control, but it's understanding um, that the world, as, as we've been talking about, is not always a friendly place, and it's keeping a protective layer between you, your dog, and what could happen in an unknown situation. Yeah, of course, and, and the individual being who pays the price is the dog. <laughs> I mean, You're right. You know? In I mean, the end, the dog, yeah, when yeah, it comes you know, down to it, the animal's going to pay the price. Yeah, you might get sad and you might be, you know, have regrets. But the fact of the matter is, if the dog goes back to the shelter and they're labeled as aggressive or a biter, then there's a chance their life is not going to be very good for them while you go along your own merry way. And, and, and I understand that people, that th- I understand fully that things happen, but we need to do all we can to protect the dog or protect dogs from, you know, doing things that could that could end their life. I hate to say it that way, but that could. But be. it's true. So in the end, one of the core issues about or not issues, challenges, and information that Canine Confidential is doing to impart to the readers and what this conversation is about today is we have to understand and work with our dogs. And understand that it's on their terms as well. Absolutely. I always say you need reciprocity and tolerance. And if sometimes you have to sort of, you know, unweight the scale so that your dog gets a little more than you might really want to give them, give your dog all you can and some because really they are paying a big price to adapt to a human-centered world. And they really don't have that much of a choice that we talked about in the first section. You know, we, we manage just about their whole day uh, according to our schedules. So it's, it's th- and it goes back to your art- article, you know, give your dog a break. Not just yep. distinguishing myths from facts, but give your dog a break. Yep. Uh, they know they know us better than we do because they see us whether we're talking or silent, crying or laughing with people or alone. And then we choose to give them our attention at our grace. So, you know, it's, it's understanding that the dog does have some terms and we should pay attention to that and include that in this reciprocal relationship. Absolutely. That's, that's, You've said it as well as one could say it. You've taken a sentient, caring, feeling being into your heart and your home. And if we have to bend a bit and give them more degrees of freedom than we're ready to, then do it. Because most of the time they are doing what we want them to do, even if it's good things like running or meeting their friends or going to a dog park or, you know, having a special treat. So when you can, give them a break and let them, let them really express their dogness to the fullest. And, of course, one thing is letting, let them sniff. Yeah, absolutely, let them sniff. Don't and, drag them on a leash. And unfortunately, we're out of time today. Yeah. But, you know, I would really love to maybe do a part two with this and follow up in a, a few weeks. And because we didn't even get into some of the positive benefits that we can do on a daily basis in living with our dogs, you yeah. know, understanding behavior, positive rewarding, positive training, which gets into the whole Caesar Milan and different schools of thought. So, um, Maybe we can set that up, yeah? Yeah, sure. That'd be great. So um, thank you today. This was fabulous. Yeah, this, this is good stuff. <laughs> really good stuff. So listeners, I hope you'll stay tuned and um, you know listen to Mark's other episodes on Our Wild World. And that's it for today. So thank you, Mark. 
You bet, Ellie. And so um, until next time, check out your wild world and let your dog have a sniff. Thank you again for joining us this week. Be sure to tune in next Monday at 11 a.m. Eastern Time, 8 a.m. Pacific Time for another edition of Our Wild World with your host, Ellie Weiss, on the Voice America Variety Channel. Think about living with wildlife during the coming week and what you can do right now. 